All right. It's great to be here. Good morning, One Church. And uh, I, I just can't tell you how excited I am, how humbled, uh, honored I am to, to get the privilege of being a part of this church and this team. And, and I'm just looking forward to uh, serving with you, alongside of you, and, and just supporting you all. Um, my, my wife and, and my three children, I have uh, my wife, Becky, we've been married for almost 13 years. Uh, Rachel is nine, uh, and she's down in children's worship. Luke is almost seven, and he's down in children's worship. And then we have Eli, who is right in here with us, because he just was not ready to go to his environment today. Um, I blame the family pastor uh, for doing a terrible job and not getting children into their, into their environments. But we, we've been praying for a while. Chris, Chris called me several months ago, and he was like, would you pray about this? And I said, no, <laughs> you know. And he called back a few days later because Chris knows what he wants, and, and he's always about seven steps ahead of you when he asks. And he said, well, would you pray about this again? I was like, no. Um, and, and once we started really investigating, praying, uh, seeking the opportunity, it was just something that, that we, we couldn't deny. Uh, we've been in Clarksville before, had a chance to serve here for, for a couple of years as uh, a staff member at another church, and uh, that's where I got to know Chris and Josh. We were uh, working together about five years ago and got to watch this church actually be planted. We were, we were walking the neighborhoods here together praying for uh, this, this area of town and this congregation and this church, and uh, just humbled to be here, um, looking forward to, to serving uh, with you all. Um, and, and really, it's, it's a big deal that I'm here today, uh, not because of me. Uh, but because I don't really like to go to church. Sorry, that sounds weird, coming from the new guy on staff, the family pastor, going, going to church for me, that's a big thing. It's Sunday morning, people. Sunday morning. We have two days where we don't have to work, and one of them, we gotta get up really early and come here. My alarm went off this morning, and I was like, what is going on? Like, I, was, I literally was looking at my alarm clock going, why am I awake right now? What's going on? It took a good couple of minutes before I was like, oh, I gotta go to church today. I gotta go to a new church today. And, and really, my, my, my issue about coming to church is nothing about church or, or the people that are here or serving. It has nothing to do theologically. It has nothing to do doctrinally. Honestly, my issue of coming to church is more cartoon than it is theology. I like cartoons. I like cartoons. And, and, and the thing is, when I was back in, in first, second, third grade, Sunday mornings was the greatest block of cartoon time ever is when USA, the network, before they had crappy shows like Burn Notice and Franklin and Bash, on Sunday mornings they would pull together the greatest of 70 cartoons, and they would run them for like a four-hour block. I'm talking great 1970s Hanna-Barbera cartoons. This is before cartoons were ironic and sarcastic. This is back when they just cut to the chase. We're going to be funny and you're going to laugh. And I did week after week after week until my mom invaded that time and said, it's time to go to church. So I wanted cartoons, not church. And I don't think you understand. We're talking about Hanna-Barbera cartoons, people. Shows like Jabberjaws. This is about a, a fast-talking dude, but not just any fast-talking dude. It's about a fast-talking shark who lives under the sea, and he gets into all these zany situations. I'm talking about shows and cartoons like Grape Ape. It's about an ape, but not just any ape. It's about a grape ape, people, but not just any grape ape. It's about a grape ape who is four stories tall. I mean, how would I want to pass up on this to go to church? I'm talking about shows like the Hair Bear Bunch. This was about a group of bears that lived in a zoo. 
and they liked to sneak out of the zoo. You know why? Because they were in a band, and they would sneak out at night to go play at their gigs and go to the, go to the clubs and play, and, and, and the zookeeper's always trying to stop them. But it just wasn't about bears and a band that snuck out of a zoo. They all had gigantic afros. And every week while I'm watching the Hair Bear Bunch, my mom would invade and say, it's time to go to church. She always seemed to do it at the best part of the USA Cartoon Express. She would always come in when it was time for the Hanna-Barbera Laugh Olympics. See, when I was in third and fourth grade, it, it, it was not possible. The physics were not there for cartoons from one cartoon to actually be in another cartoon with characters from a totally separate cartoon. There's no way that could happen when you're, when you're seven, eight, nine years old. But somehow... Through the magic of television, the magic of cartoons, Hanna-Barbera would actually have them come together and they would compete in an Olympics, a Laugh Olympics. And the, the good cartoons, the good guy cartoons would go up against the bad guy cartoons and they would have a showdown and they would do like canoe races and the bad guys would cheat. And then all of a sudden at the end, Space Ghost would come in and would use his magical powers to force the good guy forward to win. But I never saw this. I'm just making it up. That may or may not have happened in a storyline because my mom made me go to church. <laughs> so you can understand my frustration here today, people. So one day, the young third grader, I decided enough. It's time to end the tyranny of Patricia Catherine Reynolds, my mother. It's time to shatter her iron fist of oppression. And I did what, what any good third grader would do who wants to break away from his mom as we headed out of the front door as we started to walk out into the driveway, I took off running. Just went Forrest Gump and just took off. I was going to run as far and as fast as I could, which for a chubby little dude like me was not very far. I made it about 20 feet, and I was gasping and panting. I was like, oh, new plan, new plan. So I ducked behind our car. We just didn't have any kind of car back then. We had a 1978 Chevrolet Caprice Classic. If you know anything about the Caprice Classic, you know it is about seven nautical miles long. It is made of 22 tons of American steel, forged together in this beast of a yellow car that sat in our driveway. The Caprice Classic was the perfect place to hide. When I went through driver's ed in high school, we actually learned how to drive in a Caprice Classic. You know why? Because high school students are terrible drivers. And you could kick that bad boy into reverse. You could back up into a building. The building could crumble on top of you. You could then engage, drive, and pull out. Not a scratch, not a dent, nothing. <laughs> Things were beasts. So I decide, since I can't run away from my mom, I'm going to hide from my mom. And I duck in behind that Chevrolet Caprice Classic. She didn't really know what was up yet. And she looked at me and I looked at her. I did something that was a very, very bad mistake. And to this day, when you meet my mother, she'll remind you that I ducked behind it and I went, ooh. She said, Joel, get in the car. He didn't really see what was up yet, so she starts coming around to the side that I was on. You know what I did? I jumped to the other side. She came to that side, I jumped to the back of the car. She came to the back of the car, I jumped to the front of the car. I was going to keep this hunk of American steel between she and I. She was not going to get to me. And we went round and around and around. All the while, our neighbors are coming out to go to church. Our neighbors are coming out to get their, to get their morning paper. And there's Pat Reynolds chasing her chubby little son all the way around this gigantic car. Eventually, she just kind of throws her hands up. She walks back into the house. Victory, people. Victory! It is my Independence Day! 
until just a few minutes later, the front door, like an old western, and out she comes. See, I actually had spurs on at this point. It was like an old western. Tumbleweed rolls by, and then right behind her is my dad. And then both of my older sisters, our pet dog, Mitzi. Several members of the Harlem Globetrotters, true story. The offensive line of the Los Angeles Raiders, they actually existed then. A couple regiments from the United States Army, they all start coming out. All these people leaving my house. And they join hands, true story, join hands, and began to walk towards me. Like they were Boy Scouts clearing a campground, just walking towards me. I start backing up. This was, this was an, uh, an unexpected development for my mom. And all of a sudden, I back into the Caprice Classic. What was guarding me is now trapping me. I'm stuck. And my father sees this and he goes, whip! And they begin to wrap in around me. I'm shuffling back and forth. I had one place to go because I was stuck. I was trapped. So I dove into the back seat of the Caprice Classic. Before I realized what was going on, the door closes and the locks lock. My dad, my, both of my sisters, this is the 80s. There's like 17 people in the front seat. No seatbelts. Who needs those? But it's just me and mom in the back seat. And she did one of those spankings. I don't know you've had them, all right? Because we go to one church, man. We're all jacked up, okay? And I know you've had one of these spankings. It was one of those spankings where she just started hitting my rear end and just didn't stop. And she wasn't really talking. She wasn't really speaking in tongues. She was just kind of grunting. Hey, who, you, will, ha, he, ha. And she spanked me for the 4.7 miles it took to get to church. Friends, I did not sit down until 1987. True story. Have you ever been stuck like that? Have you ever been trapped? Have you ever had nowhere to go? The resolve was gone. You didn't know how you were going to get out. You were just stuck. If you have, this series is going to be for you. And over the next couple weeks, we're going to talk about what it feels like when you're in that emotional place, when you're stuck, when you're trapped. Maybe some of you today are, are stuck. and you're, you're not stuck with a Caprice Classic and an angry mother, you're, you're stuck relationally. You are trapped in bad relationship after bad relationship. Maybe some of you today, you're stuck in, in your problems, your circumstances, and you're facing the consequences that come with being stuck in that bad place. Maybe some of you are stuck with your stuff and, and the debt continues to pile high and you think, oh, if I can just do this or I can fix this or I can buy this next thing that comes out, it will fill this hole in my heart that doesn't seem to want to fill. Maybe some of you are stuck spiritually. You want to change. You're crying out to God, but you're stuck and you just can't seem to make it over that place. As a church, we're going to camp out here on this idea. We're going to talk about these places, being stuck relationally, being stuck in your problems, being stuck in your stuff, being stuck spiritually. And we're going to use the gospel of John and the conversations that Jesus had with people just like you and just like me who were stuck. We're going to see how Jesus spoke to them, how they responded to Jesus. Because Jesus wants you to get unstuck. Jesus wants to break the trap, the bondage that is holding you. So today we're going to start with, with those of us here that, that feel spiritually stuck. Spiritually stuck. This is a painful place to be. I'm actually just coming out of, it's, this is very raw for me, I'm just coming out of a season where I've, I've felt that. Back in January, I was in a, a pretty bad car accident. I got T-boned. 
uh, it's totally my fault, but got T-boned nonetheless, woke up in the back of an ambulance, suffered some, some cuts, some bruises, but mainly a concussion, and it sent me into a funk. Over the next couple of weeks, as I battled headaches, I didn't want to go to work, I didn't want to work out, I definitely didn't want to do anything spiritual, I didn't want to read my Bible, I didn't want to do any devotions, church and worship felt flat, and I wanted to blame everything else. But it's been over the last couple of weeks and months as I've prayed and worked through this and sought counsel and, and found help and healing that I realized I was stuck, stuck spiritually. I was stuck in my, in my religion. See, because as, as, a, as a minister, as a pay, I tell people all the time, I'm a professional Christian. I'm paid to read the Bible. I'm paid to go to church. It's the easiest job ever. So all of a sudden I start going to my religion. What do I have to do? What, what must I do to get out of this? How, 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 do I do, how do I work my way out of this? And religion, it's going to fix this. I'll serve more. I'll, I'll give more. What do I have to do? I kept going back to that. I kept going back to that. And the depression got deeper. The frustrations got more difficult. And God seemed more distant. Are you stuck today spiritually? Are you stuck in religion Know this, before we go anywhere, know this, that when it comes to religion, you're always going to remain stuck. You'll always be trapped when it comes to religion. The root word in religion, in the original text, in the original languages, the root word of religion is bondage. As long as you're seeking religion, you're going to be in bondage. You're going to stay stuck. And not just spiritually stuck, you're going to say selfishly stuck. I was stuck these last few months, because I was making it about me. Woe is me. Look at all of my issues. Look at all of my problems. Who's going to fix this? I, I can do this. I can break this. Let me work. Let me do this. I can get through this. Religion puts an emphasis on us, and God did not send Jesus to make us more about us. God sent Jesus to save us from us and to help us make more of God. This will never happen if religion becomes our foundation. Because religion is rule after rule and do after do and don't after don't. So maybe if we do all of these things, God will be pleased with us. And the longer we do this, the longer we'll stay stuck. The longer we'll be trapped. This was my issue over the last few months. And I bet it's an issue for maybe a few of you in this room today. You feel stuck. You feel trapped. It was definitely Nicodemus' issue in John chapter 3. If you have your Bible, turn there. Um, we're going to look at this story of Jesus meeting with this man. And inside John chapter 3, we're going to start to see the contrast between religion, which is dead, and relationship, which is life. We're going to see how religion tries to earn, but relationship simply enjoys Religious people don't get this. Nicodemus sure didn't when he came up to Jesus. Look in your Bible in John chapter 1, or John chapter 3, verse 1. It says this, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. Pharisee is, is, a, is a word we don't use a lot now. But in, in Jesus' time, in Nicodemus' time, they were the religious leaders of Israel. They were, they were the, the upper class of, of the religion. There's about 6,000 of them during Jesus' time, and they lived by the law. 
The word Pharisee means to be separated. They were religious separatists. And they worked the law over and over and over so they could live what they thought would be the perfect life. And then God would love them. They took things like the Ten Commandments, which God gave in the Old Testament. They took the Ten Commandments and said, all right, how do we live these Ten Commandments? So they began to write commentaries on the Ten Commandments, interpreting them out. In fact, they came up with 610 commandments that they put on top of the Ten Commandments. You want to live these out? Here's the 610 ways that you do. For example, the Pharisees like Nicodemus took the fourth commandment, which says, keep the Sabbath day holy. And the Pharisees determined, how exactly do you do this? If we're not supposed to work, what can and and can't we do? They began to, to, to write laws and began to write commandments of where you walk on the Sabbath day. Because if you were to walk on the grass and you were to bend or break just one blade of grass, you've exerted effort, you have worked, and thus you have sinned, and you are separated from God. So whenever they walked on the Sabbath, they walked on the dust. The Pharisees said, that's how you do it on the Sabbath. They they looked at things like, how far can you go from home on the Sabbath? If you're supposed to rest and be at home with your family, what exactly does that mean? So somewhere, some good Pharisee, maybe it was Nicodemus, said, you can go X number of steps. You can go 33 steps. If you've got to go get your mail, walk down the driveway to get your mail, which you know what the Hebrews called it. It was Heb mail. <laughs> Come on, people. Heb mail, like email? Oh, I forget. Nobody does email anymore. We, we tweet and toot and smoke signal pa- carrier pigeons. Heb mail. I thought it was funny. I wrote that one last night. Heb, heb mail? No? All right. I'll be here all week. All right. But they said, if you're going to go get your heat mail and you need to walk down the driveway, how far can you go? 33 steps. So the night before the Sabbath, good Pharisees would actually pace out what those 33 steps are. And they would tie a rope to the front of their house. And as they walked, the rope drug on. And when they got to 33, they would put that rope down and say, if I go past that rope, I will sin. I will be separated from God. So if my dog gets out of the house and run past that rope, somebody's eating dog tonight because I can't go past the rope and get him. This was Nicodemus's world. Rules and regulations and order so you could be right with God. But John, the book of John tells us that not only was he a Pharisee, he was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He was a member of what was called the Sanhedrin which was the upper level of the Pharisees. These were the best religious types of the, of the Pharisees. They were essentially the Jewish religious supreme court. So when it came to Nicodemus, this was a man who came to Jesus who was very connected. He was very important. He was very smart. He was very responsible. And most importantly, he was very, very religious. To the point that in verse 10 in chapter 3, Jesus looks at Nicodemus and he says, you are the teacher of the law in Israel. You are the teacher. And he came to Jesus. In verse 2 it says, he came to Jesus at night. Nicodemus had a reputation. He's a Pharisee. He's a good religious guy. And he's going to this man who is essentially a a religious barnstormer. He's the spiritual guy that's kind of on the outskirts, doing miracles and drawing attention. So Nicodemus wants to go to him. And so he goes, not during the day, he goes at night so nobody would see him. And he wants to go and talk to Jesus about his favorite subject, Nicodemus' favorite subject. He wants to talk about religion. And he goes to Nicodemus, or he goes to Jesus, and he starts to talk religion. But you'll see very quickly, Jesus 
turns it from religion to relationship. Nicodemus comes to him in verse 2 and he says, Rabbi. This would have been a, a compliment to Jesus, even though Nicodemus totally knew that Jesus did not go to the right rabbinical school. He didn't have the good law education that Nicodemus did. He wasn't as connected and smart and responsible as, as Nicodemus was. But nevertheless, he says, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the miraculous signs that you were doing if God were not with them. Honestly, if Jesus was truly Nicodemus' rabbi and teacher, he would have gone and simply sat before his teacher to hear, to listen, to learn. But he goes to him and says, Rabbi, teacher. He says good things because he's heard good things about Jesus. Jesus is good. He said nice things. He's done a, a couple of worthy things that need to be reminded of. Many of us here are the same way. We're here because we think Jesus is good. We think that Jesus said a few things that we should listen to, that he's done some acts that, that, that were pretty good things. But the one thing that Nicodemus didn't say to Jesus was, you are God. Nicodemus says, you are from God. He was, he was parsing words here. He was, he was blowing smoke at Jesus. He was trying to compliment him. Look, rabbi, teacher, we know you're from God. And Jesus does what only Jesus could do. He cuts through the crap. He looks at him and he replies and he says this in verse 3. I tell you the truth. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Where does that even come from? <laughs> can you imagine what Nic Nicodemus was like? That's not what I was talking about. You're, you're religious, just like me, right? You're, you are with God. And Jesus looks at him and says, no one can see the kingdom of God. No one can know God unless he is born again. Jesus did this because he saw Nicodemus' heart. He knew his intentions. He knew what he was up to because Jesus has spiritual x-ray vision. We see this in chapter 2. Just look back up to, to chapter 2 here in, in the Gospel of John at verses 23, 24, 25. Coming out of Jesus, coming out of the wedding at Cana, his first miracle, coming out of cleansing the temple, it says that, that Jesus, in verse 25, he did not need man's testimony about man, for he knew what was in man. Jesus could see what Nicodemus was up to. And so he stops him, he gives him a Ric Flair chop to the chest, because to be the man, you got to beat the man. Woo! He says, hold off here, Nicodemus. Let's talk about what really matters here. We're not going to talk about religion. We're going to talk about relationships. So he stops Nicodemus' flattering statements. Because he knew what he was up to. When Nicodemus looks at him and says, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher. See, a teacher is somebody that does something. And that's good when you're religious. Because you're doing something. You've made it. You've attained. And God surely will love you. He says, who has come from God? Not is God, but has come from God. Who could, who, for no one could perform these miraculous signs that you are, wait for it, that you are doing. Religion is about doing. Do this, don't do that. Listen to this, don't listen to that. Drink this, don't drink that. And Nicodemus was happy here. He is essentially saying to Jesus, tell me what I have to do to make God happy. What must I say? How must I act? What must I do? Many of us come to church going, what's the potion that I've got to drink to have what these students did when they were baptized? How do I get that? 
Tell me what to, to drink and I'll do it. What do I have to say? What must I listen to? What do I have to do? That's religion talking. When you see two teenagers who could be doing lots of other things say, I want to sit down in a horse trough in front of strangers and be dunked under the water, it's because of relationship, not because of religion that they did that. And praise God for it. Nicodemus, like so many of us are saying, what must I do to get God? And Jesus is saying, you don't do anything. He says, I tell you the truth. Jesus can say this because he is the word and the word is truth. He says in verse 3, no one. Notice that there's a hopelessness here. Nobody can get to heaven. Nobody can have God unless he is born again. No one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. Born again, this is the first time it's used in the New Testament. It's the first time it's used in the Bible in this way. And it can mean to be born from above. Jesus is saying it's not about what you do, it's about what is done to you. And heaven comes down and brings grace and love and compassion. It's what is done to you. You become born again through the gospel, which shows what Jesus has done for you and me. And it comes down on our helpless state of doing for ourselves. This is where our big idea comes from today. If you're stuck spiritually, this is how we get unstuck. To get unstuck spiritually, we need to be with God before you do the work with God. We need to be with God before we do the work with God. God has done first. He has done something in you and for you. We become so then we can go and do. But religion is always going to try and turn this. What do I have to do to become? This is where Nicodemus was stuck. This is where I've been stuck. This is where I think some of you may be stuck. What do I have to do to become? And what Jesus is saying is, you must be born again. Religion is doing and it never works. Jesus is relationship. And how do we start this relationship? We start it first with an introduction. Relationships begin with introduction. I thank God all the time for Miss Jennifer Little of Boone's Trail, Tennessee, who introduced me to Miss Rebecca Pittman of Chattanooga, Tennessee, who would later become Mrs. Rebecca Reynolds, my wife, my best friend, the mother of my children. And that relationship began with an introduction. All relationships that matter, that are of worth, begin with an introduction. And Jesus is trying to introduce to Nicodemus a whole new way of relating to God, the only way to relating to God. He's saying to Nicodemus, if you're coming for an introduction into religion, I'm not going to do it because that's work, that's doing, and it will never get you unstuck. But he's saying to Nicodemus, if you want to come to be introduced into a relationship, I'll do that because that's living. That's where we grow. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 backs this up. Paul writes in this book of the Bible where he says, once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. There's no way around the word dead, is there? It's not once you were kind of making it, you, you were breathing, you had a little bit of a pulse. No, Paul says, you and me, we were dead. Dead, there's no way to get around that. You cannot see the kingdom of heaven unless you're born again, unless you have life. 
So God does what only God can do. Because just a few verses after uh, Ephesians 2.1 says this, it says, But God, because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, because it is by religion that you have been saved. No, it doesn't say that. It is by doing that you are saved. It doesn't say that either. It says, it is by grace that you have been saved. It's by grace that I have been saved. It has nothing to do with what I have done. It has everything to do with what God has done through Jesus Christ in me, and he wants to do in you. We were dead, Ephesians 2 says. We cannot, Jesus says in John 3. But God, Ephesians 2, 4 says. We can be born again, John 3, 3 says. We were dead, and God made us alive. My prayer is this. If, if, if I can do nothing more today, I simply want to introduce you to God who loves you so much that he wants to bring you from death into life. God loves you so much that he wants to help you get unstuck. He wants to unstuck you. This is what Jesus is doing in John 3 with Nicodemus, but it's confusing to a religious person. In verse 4, Nicodemus says, what do you mean? How can an old man go back into his mother's womb and be born again? He doesn't get it. Religious people don't get it. And Jesus responds to him in verse 4. I assure you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the Spirit. Humans can reproduce only human life, but the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. We're here because we were physically born. To have physical life, you have to be physically born. But what Jesus is saying is to have spiritual life, to have eternal life, you must be spiritually, eternally born. You must be born again. And the Holy Spirit is at work doing this. God has sent the Holy Spirit. Verse 8, it says, the wind blows wherever it pleases. Jesus says, you hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from, where it's going. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a mysterious being, but he is active. He is moving. He is pulling. He is convicting. Some of you are feeling that this morning. That heart beating fast, the, the, the questions, the, 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 the reliving, the sins that, that maybe you've committed just this morning. The struggles, the failures are going, all right, I'll go here and I'll get this fixed. And you're realizing you can't. That feeling you're feeling now is not shame. It is the Holy Spirit saying, there is a way. It is the Holy Spirit acting on behalf of God who sent him to go into your hearts and start to pull you, convict you, challenge you, draw you to God. This is what Jesus was saying to Nicodemus. It's what Jesus is saying to you and me. He's introducing God. In verse 9, Nicodemus responds with his favorite question. How can this be? And Nicodemus is told by Jesus in the next three verses why and how he is stuck in religion. In verse 10, we see that Nicodemus, he doesn't understand. Jesus looks at him and says, you are Israel's teacher, and you do not understand these things. You don't understand why you're stuck. You don't understand how to get unstuck. You don't understand what God's doing for you. I've felt this way far too many times. For those of you today that are struggling with understanding, let the Holy Spirit move. In verse 11, we see that Nicodemus doesn't accept Jesus looks at him and says, you people, you religious types, do not accept our testimony. You don't accept this. 
Not only do you not understand, you, you won't accept it either. You won't accept grace. You won't accept love and mercy that's unconditional on behalf of God, not on behalf of what you've done. And in verse 12, we see that Nicodemus, he doesn't believe. He says, I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? How will you believe if I speak of eternal things? How will you believe if I talk of the, the Spirit coming to save you? Jesus then carries on into verse 13. He says, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Let me give you a little hint. Jesus is talking about himself here. The only one that that ascended to heaven is the one who descended from heaven. Jesus came from heaven miraculously so he could live among us and show us what it is to relate to God and that it can only be done through him. But it still confused Nicodemus. So Jesus decides he's going to kick it old school. And in verse 14, he says, just as Moses lifted up a snake in the desert, Nicodemus would have gotten this, because this is an Old Testament story. Nicodemus, oh, I know this one, because he's a good religious guy. He has done the studies. He has read the Old Testament scrolls. So when Jesus talks about Moses, Nicodemus is like, all right, I can track this. This whole spiritual thing, eh, this whole, this whole God doing for me, eh, I can, I can do this. And Jesus begins to talk this, this story relating to Moses. As the, the, the nation of Israel was wandering through the wilderness, they were complaining because that's what they did best. They were complaining about where they were and their lot. So God lifted up serpents that began to bite the, the people of Israel, which made them sick. So they complained more. And Moses went to God on their behalf and said, what do I do? And God commanded Moses to make a bronze statue of a serpent and stick it on a stick and lift it up. And when people looked at this bronze serpent they would be healed. They would be sick no more. This is why when you go to the hospital and you see a doctor's emblem, it has snakes around it. Doctors didn't think that up. They just ripped it off from the Bible. Not as smart as they think they are. Numbers 21 gives this story. If you look at this, you'll be healed. If you look at this, you'll be sick no more. So Nicodemus is tracking here. In verse 24, it says, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone may have eternal life. And all of a sudden, Jesus turns off what Nicodemus was wanting here and puts it back on relationship with God, relationship with God through Jesus. Jesus isn't talking about a bronze snake healing people from the snake bites and the sickness that it brought. Jesus is talking about the cross being lifted high. And when people look to the cross, they are healed from the spiritual sickness of death, of separation from God. Because God loves, God gives. And God gives us to the cross. Can I introduce you to this God today? Who says in verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, happy Father's Day, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Thank God for that Father. God lifts high the cross of Jesus because he doesn't want you to be stuck anymore. Not stuck in religion, not stuck in yourself, not stuck in what you have to do next. He wants you to have love and grace and mercy and relationship with him forever. It all starts with an introduction. Let me close with the second way that this develops. Relationships start with introduction and secondly, relationships grow by conversation and by shared experience. John 3 was the introduction, Nicodemus to God, God to Nicodemus, and Jesus helped bring the way, and the Holy Spirit worked. 
But in John 19, we see the end of the story. If you go in your Bibles there to John 19, verse 39, we see what happens to Jesus' body after he has been crucified. He's been tried falsely. He has been accused falsely. And then he was put on the cross and killed, murdered, right out in public. And there was a man, it says in John 19, 39, named Joseph of Arimathea, who was a secret disciple of Jesus. And he went to Pilate, the guy who ordered the crucifixion, for permission to take down Jesus' body. And when Pilate gave permission, Joseph came and he took the body away. With him came Nicodemus, the man who would come to Jesus at night. And he brought with him 75 pounds of perfumed ointment, which was probably about two years of wages, thousands and thousands of dollars being spent here. And he brought this perfumed ointment, which was made of myrrh and aloes. So following the Jewish burial custom, they wrapped Jesus' body in the spices and in long sheets of linen and cloth. If you want relationship, you need more than an introduction. That's a great place to start. But you need conversation. You need shared experience. That's why we read the Bible. That's why we join small group. That's why we do spiritual disciplines. Because that big idea is to be with God before you do the work with God. We want you to work and serve, friends, but not as a way of currying favor with God and getting him to love you. We want you to start with the introduction and grow in that relationship. Nicodemus in John 3 was introduced, but then he was challenged. Then he was moved by the Holy Spirit. And somewhere in the Gospel of John, Nicodemus' life became very different. That no longer did he go to Jesus at night. He went to Jesus at day, right after a man who they condemned as a criminal was murdered in front of everyone. Nicodemus came out in day and said, that's the guy I want to be in a relationship with. That's who I want to follow. That's where I want to be. This isn't in Scripture, but, but this is what I think, all right? This isn't the Bible. This is the KJV, the King Joel Version. I think when Nicodemus saw Jesus lifted high on the cross, he remembered that conversation from that night. That conversation from that night, two years, three years before, when Jesus said the Son of Man must be lifted high. If you want to be born again, if you want to have relationship with God, if you want to be unstuck spiritually, you must see Jesus lifted high. And for Nicodemus, it all clicked. And he wasn't trapped anymore. He wasn't stuck anymore. For those of us here today that are stuck, that are trapped, and religion won't seem to fix it. Coming here, it doesn't seem to fix it. Realize that it's not coming here and doing something. It's coming here and seeing Jesus Christ lifted high. Because God so loved you that he gave his only son so you can have eternal life, so you can be born again. For those of you that are stuck today, let the Holy Spirit work. Look to the cross of Christ and see that your life can change. Pray with me. God, thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you that on this Father's Day, you showed what a father does. He loves and he gives. And because you, our Father, our Heavenly Father, loves us so deeply, you gave us a gift on Father's Day. When we owe you so much, you give us a gift. And there are people here today, God, who are stuck. They are struggling. They are feeling the weight of shame and guilt and pain. Turn their eyes, turn their hearts, turn their lives to see Jesus high and lifted up.
And may they never be the same. May they respond to you in their faith. May they respond to you in their prayer today. And may they reach out and say, I don't want to be stuck anymore. God, do for me. May our trust and our faith and our hope be found solely in Jesus Christ who loves us and who wants to change our stuck ways. It's in his name we pray. Amen.